Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Internet Marketing. Hello and welcome to the Internet Marketing Podcast brought to you by Cyphersibility. I'm your host, Scott Colnut, and with me today is David Morneau, co-founder of Inbe Agency. And we're going to be discussing driving massive growth with micro-influencers. So before we go into the details of micro-influencer marketing, what it is and how you can be successful uh, with those techniques... David, do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners and describe a little bit about what you do at MB Agency? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Scott. So first of all, thanks for having me on the show. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm David, co-founder and CEO of InBeat, which we operate on two level, a uh, hybrid between a software and an agency where we essentially provide done-for-you services and the tools for brands to build um, scalable micro-influencer campaigns. So really looking forward to discussing this topic with you, Scott. What do you do in your day-to-day? Describe your role at Inbe Agency and maybe describe a little bit about how you got started with micro-influencer marketing. Sure. So we got started into micro-influencer marketing. I think it was five years ago. We were running and operating uh, an SEO agency at that point, doing backlink building and so forth. And some client came to us and asked us, hey, you know, I want to dabble with this micro-influencer thing. I think it could be great for our brand. And we took it from there, realized that it was pretty similar to link building in the sense that it's a short kind of sales cycle, if you want to call it that, and that we needed to outreach, negotiate, and manage ongoing relationships with these influencers, kind of like you would do with link building. Mm-hmm. So we realized that it worked really well for this particular client, and we took it uh, and made it a service. COVID hit and it became pretty much our main service just because of the marketing we had in place for it. So here we are today doing all micro-influencer marketing stuff. And yeah, that's about the story in a nutshell. That's a really interesting, uh, I think the word pivot, it always comes up on this podcast and it just comes up in marketing language. It's kind of a bit cliche at the moment, but that is a true agency pivot during the pandemic this shift from, did you say SEO services and more general marketing service to specifically micro-influencer marketing in this period? Yeah, so the mm. exactly, that's exactly right. So essentially, the, the, the kind of the hypothesis was like, well, you know, we've got both these services being marketed and this micro-influencer thing is picking up, so might as well kind of double down on it. And mm. we, we based our entire journey from there on that uh, premise, and it's been good for us. So yeah. 
That's exciting. You hear a lot about marketers and agencies and their journeys to find their place in the market and to position themselves. It's very easy to fall into the position of being similar to every other type of marketing agency. And so it sounds like you leaned in and doubled down into the micro-influencer marketing space over these last couple of years. How, how has that impacted you over this last couple of years? Are you able to describe how it's impacted the agency? Yeah, sure thing. So essentially what's cool about focusing on a single service that's very narrow and, you know, arguably we're getting wider in the sense that we're offering Snapchat advertising and TikTok advertising in there because it's mm. just things that came up in our in our client needs. And we said, well, we could fulfill that. But essentially our service offering is very narrow, which opens the door to amazing partnerships with other agencies, right? Which has been a very good lead source for us and business driver along the years of this journey being going. And yeah, so that's a big way that it's impacted us. Additionally, it's much easier to kind of, if we go into agency speak, but operationalize the service offering behind a very narrow service offering, easy to build teams, easy to predict profitability, easy to predict the scope of a project every time and being right 95% of the time, there's always room for, oh, we did not expect that even though we've done it and done it and done it. So the biggest impact is probably in terms of systems, uh, what we've built around those things and additionally, the partnerships that come with it. So it just allows you to not be in competition with a lot of other agencies and it makes it easy to build uh, lasting partnerships with these potential partners. And just from the agency perspective, did you always have a goal to differentiate yourself and double down in a single industry or service area like this? So was it something you were already striving for or did it just happen naturally? God, that's a good question. I think, you know, I've always had the itch to kind of narrow down. I remember reading some articles back five, six years ago about like, oh, niching down is key. But when you start out, right, you're kind of... uh you're kind of being greedy and you want to cover every <laughs> possible client under the moon, right? And then, you know, it wasn't, it, it arrived by accident, but once it arrived, it was like, okay, this thing makes sense. But then again, you know, NB was built as a standalone service outside of our SEO services because we realized that, you know, operating SEO services and micro influencer marketing under one brand might have created a weird effect for a potential client. So we always operated it as a standalone brand. Wasn't the vision, but um, don't regret at all to be hyper-specialized now. What was the most difficult part of this process over the last couple of years? Um, the thing that comes to mind for me, and I think why a lot of agency owners and a lot of marketers, whether they're in-house or agency side, maybe sometimes why they don't double down when the time is right or when there's opportunity is because they're fearful of alienating their existing customers. Is that something you experienced? Yeah, that's something we experienced. And that's why COVID was such a deal breaker for us because right. overnight we lost like, you know, 50, 60% of our revenue. A lot mm -hmm. of the the SEO we were doing was uh, local specific and the sector was hit aggressively. You know, that forced us into being in this position. By no means would we be here if there wasn't COVID because we wouldn't have alienated our other customers. Just like you said, right? You fear that, oh, we're going to lose these customers because we're focusing in another direction. I think a good path of action, though, is to create a standalone brand, build it as a standalone brand, focus very specifically on like, you know, SEO for gyms, right? And then from there, kind of build it out and then want to kind of crushes it, then you can rethink the idea of like, okay, should we just focus on this very specific service? 
if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. And I'm interested in the flip side as well. So the opportunity side of micro-influencers and micro-influencer marketing. So you just discussed there that you maybe saw particularly local SEO impacted. Did you see the same level of demand increase for micro-influencer marketing? So were people coming to you that were still willing to spend money in that area? And is there any special or particular reason as to why people wanted to spend money on that type of activity during the pandemic? I mean, I think it stalled very quickly, uh, Mm. the kind of digital marketing space when COVID hit. But as soon as it ramped back up, um, we started investing heavily in uh, SCM. We started investing heavily into outreach. And, you know, we just, we, we didn't have a choice really. And then we just, we were at that place where, okay, all of a sudden, like, oh, wow, like, everyone's going to be shopping from home. Then there was kind of like the light bulb switch, right? Of like, oh, wow, like we need to do these influencer channels. And then it, that's how it happened. And we just, uh, we just, you know, got the demand, sold them on the new services and so forth. So that's how it happened. And was micro-influencer marketing, I know it wasn't a primary service as you described it, but was it a service in the lead up to the pandemic and then something you accelerated or did you start yep. the service from scratch? That's exactly right. So we were looking again with that kind of, uh, we wanted to niche down on a specific industry. We had like three industries nailed down. Yeah. Um, we had we had marketing for restaurants that, that took the door pretty quickly, as you can imagine. <laughs> we had um, marketing for dealerships as another angle because we had a good chunk of clients that were dealerships and we had micro-influencer. Um, turns out micro-influencer was the better one for us. Why? Because the kind of people that are buying this service are are much more prone to buy uh, directly through a Zoom call. Whereas dealerships, there was kind uh-huh. of like that that hesitancy. Although that probably changed drastically now. I wouldn't know, but yeah, that was why kind of micro-influencer became the thing. So we were running three different parallel brands at that moment and uh, in beat uh, one. I want to go into the basics of micro-influencers now and micro-influencer marketing, starting by just the definitions we've discussed influencer marketing on this podcast before. And in fact, I was only having a conversation with a colleague earlier in the week where we were talking about the definitions of different types of influencers. So maybe could you describe what a micro-influencer is, the criteria that you use to identify micro-influencers, and maybe just as you're talking that through, how they compare to other types of influencers? Let me let me break that down, right? Yeah. So essentially, the way we treat it internally, ten to twenty five thousand followers on Instagram is what we consider a micro influencer. On TikTok, we bump that up to a hundred thousand to two hundred fifty thousand followers. Additionally, we do look for some minimum engagement rate or average views, depending on the industry. We kind of benchmark it to the data we have, but that's essentially what we'd consider a micro-influencer. This definition, though, Scott, is all over the place. People are describing <laughs> it in so many different ways. I mean, bigger brands that are working with influencers that have 10 million, 20 million you know, followers or yeah. a micro-influencer for them is anyone from 100,000 to 1 million followers for all they care. And that's just like where we land is like, okay, well, here's our definition. Here's how we treat it. And, uh, Here's how we approach it. and But that, that gives you a good benchmark just to uh, kind of understand the, the ongoing, uh, the, this conversation where we're going to be talking about this. So, yeah. So you look at it from an engagement rate perspective, and then you also, you broadly use a criteria that's different dependent on each social platform. Yep, correct. Yeah. Exactly. 
why would you use a different criteria, for example, for TikTok? Because you talk there about the figures and typically a micro-influencer being between 10 and 25K, but then TikTok, you kind of had that higher threshold. Why is that? Yeah, just the average follower count of the creators. I mean, TikTok right. is is kind of just giving followers to everybody very yeah. quickly, and we take that into consideration. Instagram is not like that anymore. You know, you could arguably say that it was like that, but uh, yeah, that, that's exactly why we do it. There's just enough influencers with 100K to 250K followers that we can work with that, that we decided to set the definition there. But you yeah. could say like, hey, no, I want 10K to 250K and you wouldn't be wrong. It's just the way we treat it in terms of results and kind of the influencers that we want to work with. Okay, that's clear. And I, I remember reading an article recently, and I wish I could remember where it was from, but I, I remember it being around nano influencers. And I just wondered if you've come across that term as well, and whether that's even a kind of a level below micro influencers. Is that something you've heard? Yep, that's something we've heard. And we've started, you know, creating marketing material around that. Because right, that's, right. you know, that's how people are calling these kind of uh, influencers that have 1,000 to 10,000 followers. And, yeah. you know, and the bet on the bet on these influencers is that, like, hey, you know, their following is not as swamped with promotions from these influencers, right? Yeah. So less promotions in feed for an influencer meets high level of trust. Additionally, the cost is usually much lower. People that are looking to work with nano influencers are typically looking to do it in exchange for product or very so very low lump sums of money. And that's kind of like what people think about my uh, nano influencer. That's interesting. So kind of the lower that you get in terms of the influencer scale, the more you're willing to bet maybe. Uh, on the future, their future success is that a fair way of looking at it? Yeah, I mean, and their present, their present audience, right? If mm. someone has never promoted a product in their feed, and you are the first product they promote, then that's a huge win, right? Yeah. But there's tons of complexity to it because imagine someone who has 1,000 followers. A lot of these followers are their friends or close network, right? So they don't want to promote anything. So if you don't go into nano influencer marketing with a strong brand, it becomes really hard. And so I'm interested in, before we get into some examples of micro-influencer marketing, specifically kind of your agency role in that process. So for example, if I'm a company that reaches out to you, what types of influencer marketing activities do you then help with? Is it, for example, the identification? Are you cutting deals? Are you helping with the type of content that's being produced and the kind of creative control? Yeah, if you could maybe talk through that spectrum of activity. Yeah, we do the whole thing from A to Z. So creating the relationship, uh, negotiating the influencer, helping with the strategy, positioning, where does our marketing effort fit into? Um, is there a bigger strategy? Is the content going to be repurposed? Is this for uh, to grow organically on a social media? What is the goal, right? We, we, we help with the whole thing from A to Z. Uh, we sign the contracts, we get the influencers in front of the client, and yeah, essentially our our whole service is kind of like, hey, you know, just give us some criteria and enjoy the ride. We'll take care of everything. And does that mean that you have, there are commonalities in the types of businesses that reach out to you for micro-influencer marketing? I'm thinking here, for example, would it be that micro-influencer marketing is more suited to small and medium businesses? Or is there a place for micro-influencer marketing in larger corporations? Can you maybe talk that through? 
Yeah, there's there's a place for micro influencer marketing in every corporation, and the reason is that you can use it in, under multiple angles. For instance, you could say we want to use micro influencers to create content to power a social media page, right? Mm-hmm. You could f- easily run, you know, a 200 micro influencer campaign. You could say we want to run a micro influencer activation campaign for our stores in the LA region, right? And then you could run a 100 micro influencer campaign there to create massive buzz. Or you could say, hey, you know, we're a smaller D2C brand and we're just looking to test this thing out. We're going to look to work with 10 influencers, right? In that case, you know, it's a very different campaign, but the execution of it remains quite similar in the sense that it's all about finding the right influencers, creating an activation that makes sense, ensuring that the influencers do what they're told to do. And yeah, that's about what we do. Could you describe the benefits of micro-influencers and why someone would choose a micro-influencer strategy for maybe a smaller medium business? What are the main benefits to smaller medium businesses when it comes to micro-influencers? So a couple of things. You're not dealing with an agent, which makes it a lot easier for you to negotiate in the sense that you can get the copyrights to the content. Usually agents will gate that and ask for significantly higher sums to get copyrights and the ability to reuse it in paid media, for instance. So that's one thing. Another thing is that, you know, you get many chances at the bat with uh, less money, right? So, you know, uh, you can just pay for multiple collaborations. Some of them are going to fluke. Some of them are going to be widely successful. And then you can just test more collaborations. And if you were to work with one single big influencer which you know can eat up your entire budget in a single collaboration especially if you're a smaller brand right you know macro influencer campaigns are on a different level in a sense and we have worked with my uh, macro influencers um not particularly something we like to but sometimes our client trusts us and they want us to take care of that for them we have partners and so forth but macro influencer collaborations can range you know ten thousand to a hundred thousand dollars for an activation and then you know this is not a one post kind of thing obviously mm. but you know these you're, you're playing a different ball game so your your media your media spend is much higher and if you flop then it can be much more damaging than if you flop a, a $500 collaboration. My assumption as you're talking through there is that if you're a larger corporation, you could argue that it's an unlevel playing field because larger corporations might have bigger budgets and therefore, if they're willing to, they can sweep up the micro-influencer marketing. Is that something you've actually seen in practice? And is it a level playing field? I mean, I think it's a buyer's market in the sense mm. that their uh, technology has enabled a lot of people to become micro-influencers around a specific hobby that they f- pursue or, you know, they're just looking at YouTube videos on how to gain followers on Instagram and they just enjoy kind of the status behind it. So there's a lot more micro-influencers than our brands hiring micro-influencers. So mm. that's one thing to consider, right? It'd be very hard to buy out the whole level playing field, the yeah. whole playing field for micro influencers because of the sheer numbers there. Unless, you know, you're like, hey, let's go after gardening, right? And you're like, let's sweep up this whole gardening thing. But then yeah. there's going to be new gardening influencers that sprung up every other week, right? You're going to have uh-huh. new people that are just going to be great content creators and so forth. And that's really nice because it leads me to the part that you were talking about, which is the importance of identifying the influencers. So can you talk me through maybe that process a little bit? For example, if there are tools that you use or services or resources or any tips that you can give to anyone out there that's thinking about launching a micro-influencer campaign, how can they identify the right people? 
Yeah. I mean, look, I'm fully biased, right? We built a tool uh, to do exactly that. You're, so it's kind and of. And you're like, welcome to promote it. It's a good chance yeah, to promote yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks. It's uh, inbeat.co <laughs> and it's an influencer database. allows you to filter influencers by follower count, location, language, and so forth. So, kind of a lead database where you have tons of influencers in there. You also have bigger influencers and so forth, but it's really built around micro influencer marketing. Um, just because it allows you to export multiple, multiple influencers and contact them afterwards in your favorite email tool and whatnot. But essentially, the way we kind of look at it might be a little different than other people do, but we look at engagement rate. Of course, obviously, everyone looks at that. We look at follower count. And once these two metrics are covered, it's all about content quality. We bet heavily on content quality because we feel like it's the, it's the thing that just moves everything forward. If the content is good, everything just follows. So content quality, hard to evaluate. The way we train people in-house is, you know, that we have like kind of like playbooks of like, this is good content, this is bad content, try to get people to create an eye for it. Obviously, it's hard. Um, but we do care a lot about high quality content. Bigger brands do. They care about brand safety. And, you know, if you're working with bigger brands, right? Um, I don't know if you guys do any, uh, influencer marketing, but you might know essentially is there's a lot of brand safety issues, right? Mm -hmm. So you're, you're dealing with like, okay, well, you don't want an influencer that's been kind of caught up in a political whirlwind or, you know, that has an only fan account. Potentially your client is not too down with that. And these are things that we see consistently across different clients is like, okay, what are the additional metrics and um, checks and balances we need to put in place to make sure that we're not uh, shooting ourselves in the foot with some influencers that don't match the brand safety guidelines. As you're on the topic, I was going to ask a question about red flags to avoid and kind of pitfalls to avoid with micro-influencer marketing as well. So you've just mentioned there, maybe do your research on uh, the history or the footprint of an influencer, maybe that's a good example. But there any other red flags to avoid when working with micro influencers? Yeah, I mean, so ease of communication is the biggest criteria because once you work with micro influencers, you realize that this is not a business for them. And like we have systems and places to follow up, follow up, follow up, make sure that they post, make sure that they post. And we have teams. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Like it's very hard. So we 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 identify the ones that are easy to work with and. You know, if you realize in your email communications that this person is not responding to you all that much before you even sign the agreement, then don't move forward with it. That's probably right. one of the biggest red flags. It's not more of a, it's more of a kind of like a red flag on your operations, but less on the kind of brand safety side. And on the brand safety side, I think um, red flags are relative. Some brands thrive on, um, you know, boldness and people that have done stupid things and whatnot and build on top of that. And that's just, that's just depends on what your brand is and what kind of uh, brand play are you willing, are willing to take, right? Some clients are completely fine with, for instance, an influencer having an OnlyFans account, right? But some mm -hmm. clients are totally not okay with that. And it really depends again on what your brand stands for. From what I've seen, macro influencers, more influential people, they also want a level of brand control about how they present your brand in their story and on their social platforms. Do you have more creative control when working with micro influencers versus macro influencers? Is that something you see? Yeah, in that sense, we do. The way, the way we kind of leverage that creative control is that we will find content examples that we really like. And we will share that with the influencers. Additionally, here's the thing. When working with 
micro influencers. Not of them. Not all of them are good at creating different content types. So we do identify kind of influencers based on their content type and what they're good at doing. So because we carry a database, right, that we that we use and we we can reuse influencers for different campaigns. So let me give you an example on that. You want to create ads for your Facebook ads and they want to be feature specific ads where you want to show specific features of a given product. Well, I can tell you right now that not all influencers are good at creating that type of content. So you want to you want to you want to make sure that you give the right influencers the ability to create that type of content. And once you have the right influencers, that's uh, well, let me close the loop here because we talked we, we started this with uh, creative freedom. But once you have the right influencers, it's very easy to give creative freedom because they'll do they'll do their thing pretty well without having to actually take a lot of guidance from you. Yeah, that's really interesting. And a very similar question in terms of the comparison between the two micro and macro influencers. My assumption is that you would maybe choose to work with a a macro influencer, a very popular person, if you wanted a more immediate return on investment. So for example, you have a specific product or service to promote, you know, the influencer gets a whether they work with you on a campaign or they get a, a one-off transactional thing to promote, they get a discount code. You see the more immediate return on ROI and it's more a transactional basis. But I would imagine that it takes a little bit longer, though you can probably achieve some immediate success when you're working with micro-influencers. I'm assuming you would see the benefit of that working with them for longer periods. So am I correct in that assumption? And how do you measure the success the success of working with micro-influencers and how that compares to macro-influencers? Yep. So you've got the easy metrics, right? You know, engagement rate, number of likes, number of comments, et cetera. And then you've got like sales metrics. Let's get them to kind of share a promo code and let's get them to share as well, link in their bio potentially, right? And if you have an influencer that's easy to work with, that created amazing content, and that drove sales. You know, what you do is you recruit them on an ongoing basis. So the way we orchestrate these collaborations is like, hey, you know, influencer, here's the agreement. We want you to post one or two times a month and we'll pay you this or this or give you special products and whatnot. So it becomes more of an ambassador play at that moment, but you decide how you call it. But essentially, yeah, what what micro-influencer is, is it's a numbers game. So you have to work with a lot of influencers to find the right ones. Once you have the right ones, you onboard them on a long-term basis. And then these people become kind of your your long-term ambassadors, right? And if you have people that you're paying a couple hundred dollars a month and they're driving a couple thousands of, in sales, right? Then you won. Simple as that, you know? So mm-hmm. it's really about finding these kind of outliers that are just outperforming. Uh, I'm interested to know a little bit more about the business model side of that from an agency perspective. And then also the benefits of micro-influencer marketing from a client perspective. And David, feel free to share here whatever you're comfortable with. My thought process here is that the benefit for a client, in, I would assume that clients look at micro-influencer marketing as maybe something that they can do on a project-by-project basis. I assume that from an agency perspective, you want clients on retainers and that you want influencer marketing campaigns to roll over a long period of time. So how does that work out in practice? Do you get a demand for projects and retainers or is it difficult to sell micro influencer marketing retainers how does that work so we do sell micro influencer marketing on a retainer um, unlike when we started where we tried to get everyone on a retainer we just, just came to the conclusion that it's very hard to make something mm. that is not a retainer just for someone 
a retainer in a yeah. sense that, you know, if you're like, hey, we're launching, we're opening 20 new stores in the US in this time frame, and we need influencers to visit these stores. Like, it's hard after that to like say, okay, well, you know, you should potentially think about a long-term campaign on a one-year basis. It's like, no, they want a two-month activation, heavy burst. And, you know, the way we yeah. build retention in our agency from a business standpoint is through customer success and account management. Because truth is, if a campaign goes well, and after that, you know, they have other campaigns. So we're tied to other campaigns as well. When micro-influencer as a a retainer works really well is when we get these long-term collaborations with typical with uh, influencers and we get their uh, brand ambassador program to manage and so forth right where it's like a brand ambassador program for us is just a bunch of micro influencers that are now part of our vvip we call them internally but they do well for our brand they they, they carry us and they drive drive sales and whatnot and we manage that so we'll imagine new activations and we'll talk with the social media team okay what type of content do you need this month what are the holidays that we should be pushing for okay hard holiday we've got a product that's heart friendly okay let's go it's and then let's build towards that and additionally we talk with the paid media teams and see, okay, do we need any content, any variations, any targeting, right? And we kind of become that content pipeline. That's really where we, we shine on these retainers. If clients have these needs, then it's, it makes sense for us to kind of sell into a retainer, but we don't try to force the retainer as much as we used to potentially. You talked a little bit about platforms and TikTok earlier in Snapchat. And just as I think about influencer marketing more broadly and then micro-influencer marketing more specifically, the immediate platforms that come to mind to me and the types of content that come to mind for me are things like story content, posts. And I'm just interested to know, are there any other formats that you see that are popular? And also, are there any other mediums that you see as popular? Because I realize as, as I'm thinking this through, that micro-influencer marketing, I assume, isn't restricted to just social platforms. And perhaps there are perhaps you support with micro-influencer marketing on things like, I don't know, live streamers or podcasters. Is that something you're exploring or you have explored? Yeah, we're exploring definitely the the, the live streamer uh, avenue. Reason is that, you know, we've got clients in uh, the APAC region and we're growing that significantly. And as you might know, live streaming in Asia is huge. Mm-hmm. It's huge. People are doing it platforms like Shopee and Lazada for those that don't know they're uh, essentially the kind of Amazon equivalent they're dominant in many countries in uh, in that region and it's just uh they've got their own live streaming platforms in there and yeah the micro influencer definitely lives in that ecosystem and live shopping is a thing and so forth um if you're talking more like in terms of live streamers, there's a lot of live streamers as well on Twitch. You know, YouTube has YouTube gaming now with a lot of live streaming there. Super interesting angle. We don't do a lot of it on uh, in North America on that front. Uh, it's a very different ball game. Um, we just, you know, potentially will go there at some point, but we're, we're more focused on uh, the platforms we know. Yeah, I would assume that one technical challenge, and you'll be able to tell me whether this assumption is correct or not, one of the technical challenges with both podcasts or audio content or even live stream content. Yeah, well, sorry, is, I didn't even answer your podcast question. No, 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 it's, for that. <laughs> it's fine. I'm kind of lumping them together because it's, uh, the, I think what I'm thinking here is that 
the technical challenge is not knowing the engagement rate. So it's easier with social media platforms because you have the engagement rates, which then you can manipulate into a, some kind of software product. You can pull that information in because it's static or it's eventually static. But it's harder to get that kind of data when it comes to podcasts or live streams. You know, it's not as easy to pull that information through APIs if, if it's possible at all. So I'm just wondering yeah. if that's a technical challenge that you've either come across already or that you can foresee. So we treat podcasts the way we would treat kind of YouTube influencers, right? Well, I mean, YouTube influencers in the sense of like sponsoring a video, right? Mm -hmm. it, it feels more like a media buying play yeah. than it feels like an influencer marketing play. I don't know if that makes sense. But what I mean is like, you know, when I buy a YouTube spot, you know, in your video, I look at your audience. I look at, you know, okay, how old are they? Are they aligned with what we care about? Okay, perfect. What's the CPM? Like, what's the CPM? And then I'm like, okay, well, I only sell in North America. So, like, what's my effective CPM just for North America? And that's how I measure, like, kind of the – and then I tried to anchor, like, okay, our target return on ad spend, I tried to anchor it to a CPM. And once we have that, it just gives us a ballpark estimate that we can run a paid media campaign on top of. I would see podcasts as the same way. In yeah. the sense that, you know, it's like, okay, how, like downloads is the best metric you have in podcasts, unfortunately, because yeah. it's, it's, it's very opaque. And in the sense that I would look at like, okay, what are the downloads? Is the audience in line with who I'm looking to target? And let's, let's, if, let's, let's scope out a CPM, right? And I'd go at it that way. But I wouldn't go, I just wanted to loop in with that. I wouldn't go at, at it like I would go as a micro-influencer campaign on Instagram. It's very different. It's yeah. less of a media by play there. And there's other nuances to it. And just on the topic about formats and yeah, functionality maybe there, are there any trends in micro-influencer marketing that you're really excited by? Maybe changes in that space that you're seeing? Um, anything you're trying to take advantage of over the next yeah. year? Yeah, I mean, look, to me, these micro-influencers, micro-creators, call them however you want. People are giving them different names. A lot of people are calling them creators now because creator economy is like spurred up and then getting massive investment. So people are like, okay, we're doing creator marketing now, you know, so it's yeah. not influencer marketing anymore. But yeah, I can definitely see this kind of a layer of content creators just becoming the way brands create their content um, down the line have an army of you know creators outsourced that you can just give a creative brief to and they just create tons of content engage with your brand and you can just reuse that right you can create ads with that you can it's it's definitely exciting to see how how you can think of it essentially in 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 the light of the gig economy where it's like okay well we can we can essentially um place a, an order to these micro influencers for whatever we need and as long as we we kind of benefit from their creative potential then we can ask them to do anything from market research to content creation and it drives sales too so yeah i'm super excited for the future of that uh, and one final question before we close i am interested are there any uh, micro influencers that you you find particularly influential so is this something that do you find that you're influenced by micro influencers and that's something that you seek out as well personally so it's it's a funny thing right i don't i don't uh I don't actually have an Instagram account, nor do I use Facebook. It just, it just, I, I really use social media for work and for work only. And I don't use, so I don't really follow and well, I don't follow anyone on Instagram for that matter. And, uh, but in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm subscribed to newsletter, right? And yeah. arguably they are micro influencers and, yeah, I'm definitely influenced by that, right? So it's yeah. Well, that, that's, that's another. That's another. That's so interesting. Again, I could talk about this for another hour, but it's the 
the rise of micro influencers in other mediums like newsletters, for example, yeah. um, review and Substack. You know, they've they've kind of created a generation of micro influencers as well. I think it's beautiful, and I mean, I I I need to study this a lot more, but I mean platform is so the way we talk about influencers on our side is like look like influencer has influence influence is the ability to have influence over someone's decisions right that's essentially Mm -hmm. what we categorize as influence and an influencer is someone that has that influence and the platform doesn't matter it doesn't matter all that much right it doesn't matter because instagram tiktok substack whatever does 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 the audience of that person have trust in the given influencer. If the answer is yes, then you've got an influencer. Nano, micro, whatever, but you've got an influencer. That's a great way to close out the episode. So before we go, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find out more about you and Inbeat Agency? Sure. Uh, You can visit inbeat.agency, book a call right there and uh, talk to me. And yeah, that's about it. Brilliant. This has been the Internet Marketing Podcast. Thanks for your time, David. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Scott. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 